Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. I uh, checked this morning. It's 7 degrees, 7 degrees Fahrenheit out there. So spring is coming, and I know it will get here. A couple of months, we'll be celebrating the, the nice warm weather. Right now, it's pretty cold. Some news to share with you. So the FDA has granted full approval to Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, we've been using it, but they actually came up with a pretty clever name. It's called Spikebacks, and I'm not promoting it in any way, of course, but it's a, that's a pretty cool name that they actually came up with. The other really good news is is that the Pfizer has or will be asking probably later today <coughs> for emergency use authorization for the vaccine for children six months to five years of age. Uh, it's going to be a two-dose vaccine at a much lower dose. And then they'll probably go for uh, additional authorization for the third dose for the kids. But they don't want to delay it further, which is, uh, I think, is a good idea so we can actually get going with that age group. And uh, Novavax, which is a different formulation for vaccines against COVID, is also coming up with, uh, with a product that they are actually submitting information to the FDA. It's a very different way of making the vaccine. So we'll have a, a again, we'll have a fourth kind of vaccine that could be used for for this pandemic, which we, you know, we're getting there. Uh, Omicron is, uh, is going down, but uh, still uh, has been a very difficult winter for all of you, uh, pediatricians, healthcare providers, our surgeons, our, our nurses, our, our teachers, uh, you know, because this has been, you know, quite a, quite a difficult uh, winter, but we're coming out of, of, of it now. And I think that's, a, that's an important message for all of you. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a really interesting topic, which is uh, IQ and EQ. Uh, I think it's a topic that I'm really interested in. And to introduce uh, Dr. Freeman, our speaker, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Katie Cavanaugh to come up here. Uh, she's one of our outstanding pediatric otolaryngologists, an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Connecticut. And uh, she uh, has great interest and in co-leads her Office of Faculty Development, uh, which is related to all the issues related to IQ, EQ. Uh, so Katie, if you can actually come up and introduce Dr. Freeman, really appreciate it. Good morning, and thank you, Dr. Salazar, for allowing me the opportunity to introduce our speaker, Dr. Ellen Friedman. I would like to thank each of you for being with us here this morning uh, to celebrate our guest speaker who comes to us from Houston, Texas this morning. It's my honor and privilege to introduce Dr. Friedman, and I'm just delighted that she could join us today. Dr. Friedman is the director of the Center for Professionalism in Medicine and a professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Baylor College of Medicine. She's a pediatric otolaryngologist, having trained at Montefiore, Washington Hospital Center, and Boston Children's. She was on faculty at Boston University and Harvard Medical School before moving to Baylor, where she served as Chief of Service and the Bobby Alford Chair of Pediatric Otolaryngology. Dr. Friedman has offered, authored over 100 articles, has written numerous book chapters, and has given hundreds of grand rounds, panels, and presentations. She has held leadership positions in numerous professional societies, committees, and task forces. There's even an Ellen M. Friedman Award given at the American Bronchoesophagology Association for Excellence in Pediatric Foreign Body Management. Among many professional awards, she's the recipient of the Arnold P. Gold Foundation Award for Humanism in Medicine. Dr. Friedman was very recently honored by the American Medical Association Foundation with the Award for Leadership in Medical Ethics and Professionalism. 
I feel very fortunate that she's here to talk to us today. It's my privilege to turn over the microphone to Dr. Friedman for her talk, IQ Got You Here, But EQ Will Get You There. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. I'm, I'm excited that you're interested in this particular topic. And Dr. Kavanaugh, it's always a pleasure to see you. And, um, and I appreciate this kind invitation. I also, this is one of the unusual times I appreciate not being in New England because it's not seven degrees here, uh, here in Houston, Texas. Although for Houston, it's cold. Um, I don't even want to tell you the temperature because you're going to you're going to feel a little badly about it. So um, let's dig in because I have a lot that I'd like to talk about today. And I am really appreciative of not only the invitation, of, but the attendance and the shared interest in this topic. And as Dr. Salazar mentioned, uh, the title is IQ Got You Here, but EQ Can Get You There, meaning even higher. Recording stopped. Okay. So mostly uh, now Recording that I, in progress. Now that I... Um, I'm speaking more on professionalism related topics rather than just a pure pediatric otolaryngology. Most people ask me, well, what do we even mean by professionalism? And it's true that um, uh, professionalism can be an abstract concept and uh, many people uh, confuse it with all kinds of things. But basically, uh, professionalism encompasses the behaviors that create trustworthy relationships, which is really the basis for medical care and medical treatment. So, um, so it's a, a, in my opinion, it's an aspirational goal for all of us and something that I personally strive for every day. Uh, words that use uh, are used to describe someone who has professionalism is that they're altruistic, they manifest compassion, kindness, integrity, they're neat in appearance, and they're honest. And when you aren't so um, a professional, you can be rude, um, bullying, you use condescending gestures or bad language, you can badmouth other doctors from other institutions, and all of that is quite negative. So somehow or other, we start off in our careers of looking something like this, and some of us end up looking something like this. And uh, the goal of my talk and of my work at the Center for Professionalism at Baylor is um, is to help us maintain our professionalism and um, and not slip into the the bad habits that can turn us into that last guy. So let's start with um, IQ or intelligence quotient, and that's that number that is figured out in one of these multiple choice tests that we've taken. And it is your uh, innate and parent uh, relative intelligence uh, compared to to a, a standardized um, population. But emotional intelligence, on the other hand, is the skill to feel, communicate, recognize, and manage emotions, uh, your own as well as uh, those of others. So therefore, um, IQ and EQ really are, are really quite different. And that's that's good because EQ is what you were born with. Excuse me, IQ is what you were born with. And EQ is a skill. And it's something that you can actually learn and act like all skills with practice will become easier and more second nature to, to you with some effort. So today we're going to talk about some of the, the key, uh, what I have distilled down to three key uh, traits and characteristics that help one with EQ. So I'm going to um, demonstrate this by showing examples of uh, behavior when you have a low EQ and then contra uh, contradistinction with high EQ. So when you have low EQ, you, you come to work and you feel comfy and messy and you feel um, you can be almost in your pajamas and that, that it, it's just really fine. But when you have a high EQ, you recognize that uh, you want your patients to feel like you are trustworthy and professional and you take some effort to uh, even um, even when you are on call, you at least uh, kind of freshen up in the morning 
And um, I found this study where they interviewed 255 people, and they actually uh, said that uh, it is important to them how their the physician dresses. And actually, 73% uh, said that they feel more comfortable and prefer a physician who wears a white coat. Now, as a pediatric otolaryngologist, I actually intentionally wouldn't wear a white coat thinking it was somewhat frightening. But uh, this study showed that it, it is important to somewhat dress to impress your patients. Now, here are the three pillars that I'm going to go on to speak about additionally, and they include communication, appreciation, and empathy. We're going to start with the biggest and most important and uh, the skill that actually helps you throughout life with uh, your professional life as well as your professional life, and that's communication, which sounds pretty straightforward. It's just imparting information or details from one person to another. But I think everyone in the room, and I assume you're in multiple rooms, and I, I want to just say one other word that I'm sorry we can't be personally together. I look for every excuse to get back to New England. So um, so it is a pity that um, that we're doing this through Zoom. But we are communicating at this very moment. Everything we do is some form of communication. And we all know that it is a, a minefield out there. There are all different kinds of ways to have messages go wrong. In fact, George Bernard Shaw said that the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And that is clearly true. In fact, 80% of serious medical errors have been studied to and revealed to show that miscommunication is actually the leading uh, etiology. So communication and miscommunication are very important for health outcomes. Uh, they actually say that it's also a, a high cost item. The average 500 bed hospital loses over $4 million a year specifically due to uh, communication difficulties. And so I think some of the institutional interests in emotional intelligence, professionalism, and communication uh, may be financially motivated, but one way or another, uh, patients suffer when we don't demonstrate emotional intelligence. So it is totally worth our individual efforts to focus on this and enhance our skills, which is what I'm hoping we're gonna do. So usually communication can be uh, broken down into three different categories. Two are verbal, and those include face-to-face -face communication and telephone communication. And then there is electronic communication, which is um, a favorite of many of the younger generation and it has many, many pitfalls that we're going to discuss. So social scientists have looked at communication, and they say that when you are communicating face-to-face, only 7% of your message is conveyed by the words themselves. I personally find that astounding, like only 7%. The vast majority, not the vast majority, but 58% is due to nonverbal clues, which means your facial expressions, your body language, and 35% is the tone of your voice. Only 7% are the words. And so if you aren't paying attention to your nonverbal cues and the tone of your voice, you are missing a huge opportunity to influence what you are conveying to a patient, to a colleague, um, to your mate. So when you have low EQ, you ignore the visual cues. Now, for example, if I'm giving a lecture and this is what the people in the audience look like, they're not saying anything. They're not using the 7% words, but I get a pretty clear message. They're not that interested in what I'm saying and I'm not doing a good job of being engaging. And I'd like to point out this one particular facial expression, and this is eye rolling. And the reason I, I like to focus on this is because um, I was listening to NPR, which is one of my major sources for important medical information. And they were interviewing a very experienced and very successful marriage counselor who had a reputation of being able to predict whether a couple would stay together. 
um, with like 90% accuracy after only a five minute interview. And the interviewer said, how is it possible that in five minutes time, you are able to detect something or, or read them and with such great accuracy, some of the couples have been married six months, some have been married 30 years, how do you do it? And the uh, marriage counselor said, when he sees someone rolling their eyes, it indicates that they are over it. They are not involved and they are not engaged and they're not that interested in trying to work on the relationship. And he uses that as a key clue. And so um, I, I don't think that the next time someone rolls your eyes, you need to overinterpret it. But the truth is that all of your facial expressions and all of your body language is a part of the message that you're conveying to the patient. So it's really important that, uh, to recognize that if you aren't thinking about it, uh, other people are, and it can definitely get you in trouble. For example, when you ask a patient, do you have any other questions as you're literally walking out the room of the clinics? I think you're giving them a message like you don't really want any more questions. You're kind of done with the visit and you're on your way out. So be mindful of that because in your own mind, you may say, hey, I asked you, have any more questions? And I, I feel like I was trying to be thorough. And yet the patient feels rushed and that you were um, maybe even feels that you were dismissive. Now, face-to-face uh, -face communication is the richest form of communication. Let's move on to telephone communication. And now you can see that without any of the nonverbal cues, the facial expressions or the body language, the importance of your words goes up from 7% to 40% of your message, while the tone of your voice is also still important. So now you really have to think about the words a little bit more. When you have a low EQ, you don't even think about the tone of voice, you don't, you don't give it much attention. And yet the tone of your voice drastically and dramatically can change your actual message. Let's follow this small sentence. It looks pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I didn't say she stole my money, but listen to it like this. I didn't say she stole my money. 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 All right. You can see in this little exercise that a little change in the tone of your voice can drastically change your message. So please pay attention to the tone of your voice. Sometimes somebody goes, what did I say? What did I say? And they repeat the sentence and the words themselves don't really sound that damaging, or that aggressive or that offensive. But it's also the way that you say it. And when you have a high IQ, you pay attention to that and you use a neutral tone. Uh, this is another interesting study that I found, and they they said that even dogs can uh, judge your tone of voice. And they did a study where they took dogs and they put them in an MRI um, machine and they uh, gave auditory clues and they said nice words in a mean voice and the anger center in the brain lit up on, on the CT scan, excuse me, on the MRI scan. And so um, even dogs can tell what you're saying by the tone of your voice. So you, when you ignore the tone of your, your voice, you are ignoring a very important bit of information that you're conveying. So pay attention and um, use a neutral tone of voice with your messages because words are truly the most powerful drug used by humankind. A kind word can change everything. Remember the way that you start your introduction and your initial conversation usually determines how the whole conversation and interaction will, will run and how it will end up. So be careful with your word selection. When you have a low EQ, you actually don't pay attention. 
And I'd like to share this personal example. When I first moved to, to Texas from Boston, um, when I would see an ear with a middle ear effusion, such as this example of a, a, a classic otoscopy of a middle ear effusion, I would write in my note, obvious middle ear effusion. And about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, a pediatrician called me and said, well, it may be obvious to you because you come from, you know, fancy place, but I'm just a local guy. And, you know, and if it, you weren't so condescending, it, it wasn't obvious to me, I'd send you more patients. And, uh, and I was shocked because I, I hadn't intended to be condescending. And I tried to think about why did I write obvious middle ear effusion? I, I didn't mean anything by it. And I probably wrote it because one of my chief residents uh, back back when I was a resident wrote it. But um, if that pediatrician hadn't alerted me to how, how this felt when I wrote obvious mental effusion, I would have been oblivious to it and, and continued. Unfortunately, I, I've been able to <laughs> change my nomenclature, but uh, it's, it's really important to think about what, how people may be hearing what you're saying. When you have a high EQ, you think about your word selection and you're careful with it so that you make sure that the message, the desired message is actually the message that you're delivering because you and another person may listen to the very same words and hear them differently. Now, you can't be Houdini and magically understand what, how another person will interpret the words, but there are ways to be sensitive to your word selection. And this may be the most important tip that I give you in this lecture. Uh, that's what I've heard from others when I've given it. But there has been a study and it shows that when you are late for your clinic, for example, um, many times you come into the room and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. And you, and you explain why you're late. But it's been shown that instead of saying, sorry, I'm late, if you say to your patient, thank you for waiting, you get a much more positive reaction. And the feeling behind this from the sociologist who did this study is that when you say, sorry, you're late, the patients actually hear, uh, sorry, I was late. Someone else was more important and a priority and sorry about that. Um, and when you say, thank you for waiting, it indicates that you actually appreciate that the family's time is also important and that you appreciate their willingness to um, to be patient waiting for you. So I've, I've shared this tip several times and people afterwards say, oh my gosh, that's like magic. So I hope that it, 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 it's helpful for you um, in your practice. And this is another example how people can not only hear things differently, but see things differently. I, I'm sure you've seen these, these little visual exercises where people looking at the exact same image will see a duck and others will look at it and they will see a rabbit. And I actually love to point this out for on, on many different um, reasons, but it's to demonstrate how when you're having maybe a conflict with a colleague, for example, and you're like, oh my gosh, why don't they get this? And it's really because sometimes looking at the very same information, you can interpret it differently and feel very confident because you know what, indeed, you can see a duck or a rabbit in this illustration. And when you even look at data, you can look at data coming from different points of view. And today, when medicine is so subspecialized, people come with their own uh, perspective because they have their own specialty training in their own area of expertise, and they can look at it in a completely different way. So um, I, I like to bring this up because sometimes you can feel that other people are out to get you or there's a conspiracy. But the truth is that Many times it's just a, a, a different point of view and it's very, very helpful and it can make you have a much better day when you recognize that it's not a conspiracy, that it's just a different way of looking at the very same data.
Medicine is truly a team sport today. And another mantra that helps me during my day is to remember that everybody is coming to work trying to do a good job. And even when um, I have a very challenging day, I know that the nurses didn't wake up and say, how can I screw up Dr. Friedman's day today? No, everybody comes and wants the patients to do well and wants to contribute to the patient's good health. And I also feel that everybody who works in healthcare, and I mean the environmental services people, the dietary aides, the receptionists, everyone, they could have picked another area to work and they could have worked in the hospitality industry and worked in, in hotels. They are here because they want to help people and they are trying to help as you are trying to help. And so it's very important to recognize everyone's sincere effort to do a good job. And when you have a high IQ, you are mindful of the impact of your actions and your words, because every patient is nervous when they come to the hospital. They, they are worried that there's something wrong, especially when it's their, own, their child. They worry they came too late, that there's something that they can't take care of. So they're very attuned to every single gesture, every comment, every, every um, thing that happens during the, their visit. So even your casual comments can have a very heavy impact to a family or to a colleague. Uh, so they actually did a study in a NICU where they found that if a NICU nurse says to a, a young family, oh, you've got a stubborn one here, just meaning that the child maybe was a little bit slow to feed on the on one of the feeds, the, the parents integrate that into their thinking and they can go home and actually already believe that their newborn is stubborn. So the little messages that you send out really grab hold of people. Um, so it's really important to, to be mindful, even of your casual comments. And this is a great study. Um, I, I, probably many of you read it in 2015 from pediatrics it, that was performed in Israel. And they what they did is they had a um, individual come who they introduced to the group as an uh, international expert on neonatal resuscitation. And they went to show this international expert on resuscitation, who was actually an actor, two of their Cracker Jacks in a, uh, simulation teams and asked them to do a simulation of a resuscitation. And the international expert, as he was watching one, kept saying things audibly, oh, that, I don't know why they do that now. I, I would never open that. Oh, my goodness, they're opening too many different um, uh, materials. And um, I wouldn't do it in that order. And, and small things like, like that. And as he was saying these negative things, the team started dropping supplies. They opened more things. They took longer because everything was timed in the, um, in the simulation and they performed very poorly. And with the second team of uh, simulation experts, the um, international expert said, wow, that was slick. I I'm going to bring that tip back to my team. I love that. And that team actually exceeded their personal best for the time and for completing the full simulation. And so it's really important that when you uh, express dismay with a, a learner, a trainee, a, a support staff, a consultant, you usually almost inevitably do not improve their performance. You actually worsen their performance uh, just with rudeness alone. So please be mindful of that. And one last word about gossiping. Uh, don't do it. It's uh, it's very dis uh, disrespectful. It's not it's not helpful or constructive in any way. Uh, gossip is usually um, 
a uh, an attempt at humor, perhaps sometimes it's trying it's an attempt to feel like you're part of the group, but it makes others feel unwelcomed and alienated, and it is not constructive and does not lead to improved teamwork. So um, I, I just want to put in a word that gossip is a manifestation of poor emotional intelligence. So every night at the end of the day, I personally go home and I, I say to myself, uh, have my conversations been true, necessary, and most of all, kind? And uh, this is attributed to Buddha, and I'm not a Buddhist, but I, I feel like there's great wisdom in this. And I, I feel, especially um, because I, I think of myself as funny, I have an, an East Coast sense of humor, and a lot of people don't get humor, and humor is a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it can be, it can be obviously, it can be funny, but a lot of people uh, may not understand. And so I, I really try to uh, focus my conversations to things that are true, necessary, and as I mentioned, supremely kind. So moving on to um, digital communication, now you can see 100% of it are your words, your words, your words. It's not, you don't have the opportunity to, um, you, uh, to use your tone of voice, your body language, your, uh, your facial expressions is gone. So really, um, digital communication and written communication is very, uh, has many, many pitfalls and can be extremely challenging. It is not appropriate to use it to resolve conflict, to avoid a face-to-face -face communication or to express emotions. So it's really not for any editorialization. It's really just to give the facts. So it's appropriate to collect data and to share facts. When I was a kid, there was a television show called Dragnet. I don't know if there's anyone in the audience old enough to remember it, but it was a detective show. And the guy would always say, the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know, and try to keep it to the facts because any editorialization uh, can be misunderstood. And without the ability to have like in a face-to-face -face conversation, say, well, what do you mean by that? Or I don't, I don't agree with that. And, and to kind of ask for clarification, uh, you can really have your message go astray. Remember, whatever you put in an email, it's the same as having it public, and it is also permanent. I bet all of us have received an email that said, um, the Department of Management wants to retract that last email. Well, when I get one of those emails, I immediately go to see what the Department of Management sent in error, thinking I'm going to get some kind of institutional secret out of it. You cannot really call back an email. So once it's out there, it's out there, and it, is, um, it can be very damaging. Always never put anything in an email that you would not um, feel comfortable seeing on the front page of a newspaper because you could send it to one person and they could send it to 650 of their very closest friends just to let everyone else know. In the Center for Professionalism where I work, I um, deal with individuals at, at times with lapses of professionalism and I'm familiar with the case where someone got an email saying that they thought that their, their uh, chairman might be losing it because he kept repeating certain messages. And the person who received the email said, you know, she thought the chief should really know what people are thinking about him. And she forwarded that very insulting email to the chief. You do not know who uh, you, your, your intended recipient may send your email to. Now, it's bad emotional intelligence to forward anyone else's email. I'll give you that. But you can't guarantee that someone won't. Uh, the person who sent that email on thought they were being helpful. So please be careful of what you put in your emails. Do not, uh, some people say, um, oh, and when you're angry, just write the email, but don't send it. 
I say don't even write it because you have it's so easy to press send. And it's also easy to press send to all where an individual message can go to a, a wide distribution list. So please pay a special attention to emails. I know that a lot of people rely on emails now and texts because it's so convenient. It's so easy. And um, but there are so many pitfalls. And especially when there's a back and forth of emails with misunderstanding, bring it to an end and, and use the phone and, and clarify what's going on and get to the root of the matter and make it clear. When you have a low EQ, you really uh, don't follow any of those rules. You use humor, sarcasm, political opinions and accusations. This is an example from Baylor. This is one of this is our inner city um hospital, the Ben Tobb General Hospital, and a, a resident had had a very challenging session in the emergency room. When he got back to his apartment at night, he sent an email to five of his close of his close friends saying, the Ben Tobb emergency room is a zoo. Somebody, uh, it was, it's horrible. I'll give anybody $2,000 to blow the place up. Now, this guy obviously was tired from a late shift and he, he was being sarcastic and funny. I'm 99% I'm sure that he did not have a bomb lab in his apartment, but the FBI actually picked that up because this is an, a, a federal a federal hospital, a state hospital, excuse me. And um, and they they were at Baylor like the same afternoon. And they this young physician almost lost his residency, maybe would have even lost his license if the Baylor lawyers didn't defend him. Be very careful what you put in your emails and what you think may be funny. This is not in at Baylor, but this reached national news where this attractive young physician was writing anti-Semitic uh, texts and tweets. And uh, this this young physician did indeed lose her license. Uh, she was saying that she was going to intentionally give Jewish people the wrong dose of the wrong medications. So um, you really need to think about the unanticipated potential consequences from what you put in an email. You need to really harness your your humor, your political views. Uh, and, you know, and I've actually recently had a case at the Center for Professionalism where someone uh, sent a, a sort of a um, very enthusiastic political uh, rant to his Facebook group, thinking that everyone on his Facebook group uh, were all of a, a similar political view. And it, he got into an enormous amount of difficulty. So you may not First, you don't know who, your, where your message will stop because it can be forwarded. And you don't always know your, your audience's um, viewpoints. Be very careful. So when you have high EQ, you use your uh, email for appropriate uses. And here are some guidelines. These are, we call them the five C's. Your email should be concise, clear, complete, courteous, and correct. And um, my, my last one is kind. I just spell it wrong to make it a C. <laughs> but uh, really, uh, emails are, are a wonderful form of communication for the right message at the right time. And never forget that the most important part of communication is actually listening. And um, I usually do a little bit of an interactive thing here. It's, it's a little harder uh, on Zoom. But I ask you, and I'd, I'd like to post this, and maybe in the chat some of you could answer, they did a study, uh, actually a friend of mine did a study, uh, Richard Frankel, maybe maybe he's been to visit you. Uh, and they found, asked how, they, they didn't ask, they followed physicians to see how quickly they interrupted a patient who was giving their history at an initial clinic visit. So I wanna ask you, how long do you think it takes before a physician will interrupt a patient during a first clinic visit while they're getting the history? But the answer is, 
18 seconds. Oh my goodness, we give patients only 18 seconds before we interrupt them. That is incredible. And I know most people say, well, you know, I, I have to get through the visit. I have patients waiting. I'm already running behind. How long, this is this part two of this interactive exercise. How long do you think patients would talk when uninterrupted? Because they did a follow-up study and they did not, they instructed the physicians not to interrupt the patients and allow the patients to continue and stop naturally at their own pace. Can you think how long patients talked when uninterrupted, how long they spoke? 90 seconds. Oh my goodness, that's only a minute and a half. I think the patients drive in to see us from who knows where, all through the state of Connecticut, they come to your center, they, they drove, they park. I think they're entitled to 90 seconds of uninterrupted time. So please remember the important aspect of listening. There is, there is so much to learn from the patients during listening, and it is so respectful. We're going to move to the second pillar that I wanted to speak to you about, and that is appreciation, which is the ability to recognize and enjoy the good qualities of someone else or something else. And this is really a key to emotional intelligence, the ability to get along with people and to have positive work environment, work and learning environment. As Stephen Covey said, the greatest need of a human being after actual physical survival is to be validated and appreciated. And today, I feel that most medical institutions have no problem letting you know when you've done something wrong, when you're behind on your charts, when the length of stay is too long, when there are all kinds of things where you'll get a note, of, always with the intention of not being punitive, but still feeling feeling punitive. But, um, but showing appreciation kind of gets to be last on people's list. So when you have a low EQ, you resist the, the, um, the desire to share appreciation. And I'd like to share this story with you. Um, a friend of mine teaches at Stanford and he teaches a course which is called The Science Behind Happiness. And he gave his class an assignment where he asked them to um, go out and show appreciation to someone in their lives who they thought were underappreciated. And, um, and come back the next day and talk in class about how did it feel to express appreciation. And they did it. And he saw in the back of the room, there was one guy, a football player who, who didn't seem, what hadn't participated. And he went up to me, because did you do the assignment? The guy said, no, I didn't. And he said, listen, my friend said, if you didn't, don't do it by tomorrow, I'm going to give you a B in the class, which at Stanford in the science of happiness is a very bad grade. So the guy decided that he would do it. And he went um, to his dorm and he was looking out the window and he saw a lady pushing a laundry cart walking through the quadrangle. So he ran downstairs and he said, are you, are you the a lady who brings clean sheets to my dorm on Wednesdays? And she said, yes. And he goes, well, I just want to tell you, I love sleeping on clean linens and I look forward to Wednesdays every week. Thank you so much for bringing the linens. Um, I really, really enjoy them. And the lady started crying. She had worked at Stanford for 12 years and not one person had ever thanked her or given her any positive feedback. When she saw the student approaching, she grabbed onto the cart and was bracing herself for, you bring pillowcases, I need sheets, I want extra this. I mean, she absolutely was floored to have some positive feedback and a little bit of validation. And I want to not stress in a manipulative way, but showing positive appreciation is, is, has so many wonderful ripple benefits. Um, it's really um, a little act that can mean so much to so many. 
Uh, this has also been studied and it shows that many people resist showing gratitude because we think it's, we're going to feel awkward. We think the recipient's not going to even care about it. Uh, and we underestimate how the impact. But all of that has been shown to be not true. And um, I think that everybody needs a little validation and a little positive feedback. So when you have a high EQ, you actually are able to express sincere appreciation. I usually like to point to the front desk registry people at our clinics. You know, those people get the least respect. The patients yell at them. They yell at them when the parking costs too much. They yell at them when the doctor's running late. They yell at them for all kinds of things the front desk people have absolutely no control over. And um, I try to make sure that I let them know I appreciate their work. And, um, and I think that there are many people in the chain of our care and our healthcare system who are underappreciated. Uh, I think many times we feel underappreciated. And so expressing our gratitude is really very helpful. Um, so I like, this is the interactive part of our session. I'm hoping that uh, you will have a little piece of paper nearby. I'm gonna give you a second to get a piece of paper because I'd like to ask you to write a small note. And when I say a small note, I, I mean literally three sentences, something like that, of appreciation to someone that you that you feel has been underappreciated. This can be someone in your professional life, in the clinic, in the operating room, uh, in the emergency center. It could be someone in your home life. And just a, a small a small note, um, and I'm gonna keep talking, but I'm, I'm hoping I can't see you, but I'm trusting you that you will take this moment to write the note. And I, I'll tell you why I, I really and truly hope that you're doing this. I have included this in talks for a while. And um, what I really hope is after you write it, um, I'm not gonna ask any of you to get on, open your mics and read your notes, but um, I suggest that you actually give it to the person for whom it was intended. And some people have come to me afterwards and said, that they hung up these little notes that are written on index cards, because I usually pass out index cards when we're in person, and they've hung them up in their office and look at them when they're having a bad day, like it helps them that much, they've saved them. And so I hope that if, um, if you don't have something to write with at this exact moment, or if uh, you're having trouble thinking about who you want to send it to, I hope that you will complete this assignment and fully complete it by by delivering your thank you note. And you will be surprised how meaningful it is um, for anyone who receives it. I, I'm sure that you have received thank you notes from patients and others and that they mean so much to you. So I hope that you will complete this assignment. We're gonna move on to the third pillar. And uh, the, that is the, uh, the gift of empathy, which is the ability uh, similar to emotional intelligence, to recognize and appreciate the feelings that are being experienced by another. And so the big thing about empathy is, is it doesn't mean that you agree with the other person, but that you are trying to understand the other person's point of view. And uh, that is a big difference. You don't have to agree, but you need to respectfully try to understand what the other person is feeling, thinking, or communicating. And empathy uh, used to be thought of as an innate trait, like you're either born uh, to be an empathic or not. But it's not true. Uh, it's been shown that it can be taught. And that's actually one of the goals in medical training is to hold, learn how to be empathetic and to hold on to it. Because unfortunately, over time, with the many distractors and the commercial commercialization of medicine, uh, empathy can dissipate and uh, be a sign, actually, lack of empathy is a sign of being burned out. But 
But nurturing empathy and, and cultivating your own empathy actually will help you be resilient, especially during difficult times like we're going through now with, in particular with the pandemic. So when you have a low EQ, um, you actually only talk about your own experiences. And sometimes I know people do that as an attempt to sort of bridge the gap and, and show that you can understand, but it isn't always interpreted that way. And I share this cartoon and, um, you know, when you say uh, here, you see some very similar looking figures with a similar looking arrow entering their body at the same place. And the guy says, I know exactly how you feel. Well, you know, the truth is you never know exactly how someone else feels. You don't know how the, the additional pain that they bring with them. You don't know their backstory. You don't know their family history. You don't know. Um, you really never know exactly how someone feels. So when you say I know exactly how you feel. It kind of trivializes their unique feelings, their unique experiences. And it's much more helpful to say, um, I can't imagine how you feel, or I can only imagine how you feel. But uh, it's important to recognize that everybody experiences um, stimuli in a different way. And and that, um, and that what you uh, might feel is a minor thing. It may be sincerely major to them. And um, I, I think that that is a, an excellent uh, example of how important it is to show um, empathy. As the late great Maya Angelou said, people may forget what you do, what you say, but they never forget how you make them feel. And um, I think in, in life, we can either be a smusher, you push people down, or a lifter-upper. And um, when I think about my conversations, I know I want to be a lifter-upper. I don't want to be a smusher. So I, I really think it's important to think about what we say and how we make people feel. And showing empathy is a good way to, to be a lifter-upper. So when you have a high EQ, you understand that everybody has a backstory. And that is so true today. Uh, you know, uh, everybody, you think all of your colleagues are kind of in the same mental range as you are similar backgrounds, but it's, it, nothing could be further from the truth. Any one of us could have an ailing parent. Uh, we could have a child who's using drugs. We could have financial problems. These are our backstories and they, they influence how we behave and how we communicate. And so I think knowing that everyone has a backstory can help us have a, give each other a little bit of grace. Um, Many people are just barely hanging on. I think that with the social uh, and political uh, um, unrest today, the, the many, many difficulties, the pandemic, people are really doing their best to show up, you know, and um, and a kind word from you can make all of the difference in the world. And, and it's hard to believe, but I know that it's true. I know it's happened to me when I've been having a tough day and somebody will just say, uh, you know, something positive and I... I can get a little bit of, I can get fortified. And um, and you have that ability to do that for someone else. And hopefully someone else will also do it for you. Uh, I want to translate this, unfortunately, into, uh, into medicine. But this has also been studied. And it shows that patients are very much willing uh, to pay additional uh, fees to see a physician who has a reputation of being kind. They're willing to travel further to see a physician who's known to be kind. And 90% will switch physicians when they feel that they haven't been treated with kindness. So it actually is a career builder to, to cultivate kindness and empathy within your heart and in your behavior. So I'm uh, ending up by telling you that I think that professionalism is sort of our, our um, 
our life raft in, in these turbulent times. And by holding on to it, we can um, weather these turbulent times and these storms and we can maintain our resilience. I, I know that uh, there are challenges that are thrown our way. The um, need I mentioned, the electronic medical record, the billing codes, all of these distractors that really can make us get distracted from our higher missions and why we entered medicine in the first place. But if you hold on to professionalism, hold on to your emotional intelligence, uh, you can weather the storm. Remember, sometimes the people with the highest IQ have the lowest EQ, but you can work on your EQ and elevate it. So in summary, the three pillars that I wanted to stress in emotional intelligence are communication, appreciation, and empathy. These are all skills that you can improve upon, learn and cultivate with practice and with practice, they become second nature. And I'd like to close by reminding you to be kind to your patients, but please be kind to each other as well. I, I want to um, thank you for this invitation. I'm opening it up for questions now. I particularly wanna thank Dr. Cavanaugh and Dr. Salazar and, uh, and for all of your kind attention. So thank you. I, I think that um, I'm going to get some help manning the question. Yeah, yeah. Th uh, thank you, Dr. Friedman. That was yes. truly uh, fantastic and so important in, in these times of, uh, of of difficulty and uh, and perhaps less uh, patience with each other as we as we travail the the world of COVID and politics and uh, you know just disinformation, et cetera. Yes. Uh, so thank you for uh, really uh, amazing. Uh, we have a couple of questions here, and, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll keep moving. The first one is from one of our pediatricians, and I'll read it. Part of our professional role is education and sharing our patients so others can obtain clinical experience, students and residents. This role puts an imposition on families in terms of the time that it takes to have an appointment and the delay in seeing the physician and the family you expect to see. How do you recommend attending physicians frame clinical education within a patient visit without upsetting families? Uh, well, I think that's been a lifelong uh, struggle. I think that uh, basically, um, I, maybe I didn't understand the question. How, how, do, you, how do you incorporate teaching without uh, prolonging the visit or annoying the patient? Is that, was that the question? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think is you know, how do you maintain that empathetic, uh, respectful conversation with the families when perhaps with the student or the resident may take a little bit longer. So it makes it a little more challenging for, especially in pediatrics, you have a, you know, just a, yes, a, yes, yes. Turn into an hour. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, uh, usually, first of all, I always make sure I introduce the patient and uh, excuse me, I introduce the learner who's with me in the room and I make sure that the, the family is comfortable with the learner. And um, a lot of the teaching I do in, in the hallway in between uh, patients, because I really want the, the learner to observe the interaction. And so um, a lot of learning that I do with that is actually not really directly in front of the patient. I, I do uh, ask if the patient is okay with having the learner repeat certain elements of the physical exam, for example. But um, I like the learner to see how I approach history taking because I do believe that history taking has, is a kind of a lost art today. You know, everybody, the first thing they do is they order diagnostic imaging or, or some lab tests. So, um, so I, I, um, I basically, I, I ask the learners to, to observe. And then when we go into the hallway, I ask, what did you see? So that they can tell me what they say. And sometimes in advance of going into the room, when I see who it is, I, I'll, I say, look for this and see if they picked up on a, on certain things. So I guess those are some of my, my small tips. It's true that it's difficult when you have a, 
a um, chock full clinic to to do everything and to to please everybody. But um, and we do have mixed missions. So I try to do my best to serve my many masters. But I guess I do always think that the um, patient is is the prime the prime uh, goal. And I ask the learner to to pay attention and pick up subtleties. And I think that they get they pick up tips that way. Thank you. Uh, we have another question from Dr. Rebecca Moles. Uh, thank you for this engaging presentation. In what ways are you teaching EQ skills in your work at Baylor? Uh, oh, that's a great, a great question. Well, uh, that is one of, so let me tell you a little bit about the Center for Professionalism. It, it has two missions uh, set by Dr. Klotman, the, the president of the College of Medicine. One is to elevate professionalism through education and, um, and support. And the second is to remediate lapses of professionalism. So in terms of uh, teaching skills, we have a, a, a very um, vast variety of programs for all different levels of learners, uh, from medical students all the way to senior faculty. And um, I'm proud to say that we won the AOA Award for Best Practices in um, Medical Professionalism Education last year. Uh, so the what do we do? We have workshops, grand rounds. We have um, we have a wonderful workshop that uh, is available on YouTube, and it has a user's manual. So uh, for a facilitator, it's called the Threads Among Us, and it talks about being kind to your patients, but also being kind to each other. And it's about interprofessional teamwork. So we have uh, almost in every uh, every group of learners, we have something about professionalism and emotional intelligence uh, in order to hone these skills. And it's it's my hope that professionalism is going to be a distinguisher for, for Baylor in terms of a campus-wide infiltration or dissemination of these of this information and these skills. So we try to build them into every level. We have a preclinical um, a preclinical elective in professionalism and it is mainly on communication and emotional intelligence. So uh, we have sort of systematically are chipping away at uh, every level. I, I think that a lot of times people put their attention only on the students, <clears throat> but unfortunately their role models sometimes don't role model the best behavior. So I, I act, my personal philosophy is that you need a diffuse program that really um, helps the greater community. Thank you. And uh, we just put on the on the uh, link, the, the actual link to the Baylor College of Medicine location hmm. that you're talking about. So thank you. Another question yeah, you. Um, is, do you have any recommendations to very quickly help refocus or calm yourself before going into an exam room if stressed or irritated from something that happened right before that? Great question. Oh, I love that question. Thank you so much. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I have a couple of things that uh, that I can help. Uh, first of all, I uh, I think, that, in fact, that okay. Anyway, I'm going to drift off into a no, another whole talk. But um, I think, first of all, believe it or not, the old-fashioned take a couple of, of slow, deep breaths actually truly calms you down. I uh, I have um, a, a doctor that I was counseling for bad behavior, and he came up with this, which is why I'm excited to tell you. He in his pocket he carries a little. Um, gemstone. And before he goes into the room, he puts it in his hand and he rubs it and he takes these three breaths and it kind of calms him down. And he said he does that not only when he's had, but needs to calm down from the last interaction, but if he sees on his list, the room he's entering is a patient who he knows he has found irritating in the past. He, <clears throat> he puts his hand in his pocket 
and he he um, rubs it, takes a couple of deep breaths and kind of um, settles his mind, calms himself down and tries to go in with a, a positive attitude. Another uh, suggestion that I've heard is that people touch the doorway on their way in as a touchstone to remind them uh, to have empathy for the individual that they're about to see. And in uh, the, uh, the Art of Medicine, which is a course that we also teach for the medical student, at the end of the course, people get a little small um, stuffed heart that, uh, um, that is handmade. And people also keep that in their pocket as a little reminder to give a little extra heart to each patient. So I think that uh, preparing yourself, if, uh, either knowing that the patient is going to be challenging for one reason or another, or because you've had a, a little aggravation in advance, uh, can help you uh, calm down the a couple deep breaths and just trying to refocus and remember that um, you are in the privileged position of being the caregiver and that the patient is probably more upset and more nervous and anxious than you are. Thank you. Uh, a question from one of our hospitalists. Uh, thank you, Dr. Friedman, for this fantastic presentation. Wondering, do you have any tips or tricks to keeping EQ in the forefront of your brain during your day-to-day I find that there's so many tasks that competing interests these days that I remember the important role of EQ too late when we're running on empty. Where do you find that? Where do you find the energy? I, I totally agree with you. And, um, and you know, sometimes I deal with administrators and sometimes I hear administrators, you know, they say, oh, the doctors, you know, they're not trying or, or they're lazy. or uh, And it, it makes me furious because I know how hard everyone is working and I know how stressful it is. And, um, and so I feel like you need to give yourself a little grace, you know, because what we're doing is very hard. And um, I've been a pediatric otolaryngologist my whole life. And, you know, it's, there's another level of, of concern and anxiousness and uh, worry when it's your child, really. And so um, I think that we are just bombarded with problems and demands. And I think that uh, something that helps me is... Um, being aware of how I'm feeling and looking for things that trigger me. So for example, um, being hungry. <laughs> Sometimes being hungry can make you a little more irritable. And so I try to schedule annoying things after a meal <laughs> so I'm not hungry, or I try to make sure I get good rest at night. I think about the things that trigger me. So sometimes things are lack of sleep, hunger, those types of things. And to the best of my ability, I try to manage them. And uh, the deep breathing helps. And the other thing that helps is recognizing the feeling as soon as it happens. And, um, and sometimes what happens is those feelings trigger you into making a quick decision, but maybe not a good decision. And so when I feel those feelings welling up with me, like frustration or anger or impatience, I try to jump off the ladder. They call this the ladder of inference because sometimes those triggers and those feelings zip you into a bad decision. Uh, like if you see if you see somebody cut you off in, in, in traffic in a fancy car and you immediately think, those rich fancy jerks, they think they own the road and you start honking like crazy. But if you realize that your anger is kind of out of proportion to what happened or the emotion you have, you can, if you can recognize that, you can say, wait a minute, why am I feeling like this? And kind of back off and recalibrate. And so when I'm feeling out of sorts, I, that's what I try to do to get myself back on track. I try to take a pause. I press the pause button and I step back, take a couple of deep breaths and think, why, why am I so annoyed with this person? Or why are they upsetting me so much? 
And I, I try to have a deeper understanding that helps me tolerate it better. I, I mean, you know, this is all of this is um, at any given moment, theoretical. I mean, I'm I'm not Mother Teresa and I don't have a I'm not I have plenty of conversations that I'd like to call back myself or be responses. But uh, that's the difference is responding versus reacting. I, I try to respond instead of just reacting, have a knee jerk. Wow. You know, and uh, and it, it it serves you well because you see you appear to be more reasonable. And in fact, you are more reasonable and it helps you get to a better decision and a better, better resolution. So I, I think the biggest thing, the two biggest things are recognizing the feelings at, as early as possible. So you can try to tame them and pressing the pause button to not only take some deep breaths, but try to figure out what's going on and what's triggering your response. Thank you. We just have a couple more comments, and then I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Kavanaugh to close. So it's a, the the comments as a former Baylor alumna, I clearly remember Dr. Friedman's kindness and professionalism. She really practices what she preaches, and she probably doesn't realize her impact on the development of, of my bedside manner. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, who is that? <laughs> and you don't have to tell me, but thank you so much. You see, that's how that's how appreciation affects people. I'm going to have a good day now. Thank you so much. Another Thanks. comment is thank you for your, this excellent presentation. Thinking about these factors will help all of us to be more mindful of our own messages and in so doing be more effective in our work no matter our role. So another great comment. So thank you. So you've had a tremendous impact on us this morning, getting a lot of comments, text messages that are not even here. Um, Katie, thank you for inviting Dr. Friedman. Do you want to close? Thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure to hear from you as always. And I know I'll take away a few things that I can change my day with and my practice. And I think we all can. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's really been a pleasure. And as I, I mentioned, I am really disappointed that I couldn't be with you in person. I, I love Connecticut. <laughs> thank, thank you again. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you on Friday for the Ask the Experts session. We also have a noon presentation about uh, Kawasaki disease and Missy uh, and our pediatric translational seminar series. It's all in your link in your email. Please log in. Thank you again. Be well, be safe. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.